you've been away for a while from, you know, from recording. Um, how, how did it feel to be back in, uh, back in the thick of it? Yeah, really good. You know, I mean, it's probably surprised me really because, like I say, my whole life obviously was in creating Judas Priest and, and traversing the evolution of music as we know it today. I, th- I think when we first started, people used to call us a progressive blues band, you know, in the 60s. Um, but obviously that went on to, to to rock and heavy rock and hard rock and heavy rock and heavy metal. So, um, but yeah, doing this was like a, a real big freshness to me because obviously I'd, I'd stepped out of the family fold, you know, and um, it was kind of a bit weird. It was like a... Like a kid going out into the world on his own and leaving mom and dad behind, I think. (laughs) You know, you're on your own now, son. So, and then I realized it wasn't that difficult and it was, you know, enjoyable and easy to do. I mean, also during all this time and the time you've, you've, um, since you left Judas Priest and all that, have you still constantly been playing, so to speak, for yourself, by yourself? Yeah. Straight away, when I quit the band, I went into a production um, for some people I knew, um, um, but obviously they related to Ingve, and um, so I did the Mick Savino album, who was Blackmore's Knight and Ingve's bass player. I was asked to do that, so I did the rearranging. Uh, the music and and producing the record it sounded good. It was a good record, really. The band didn't go on to do uh, exceptionally well, sadly, but uh, it was good. So I, I did that, and obviously I did some re-recording. I did some special guesting. I did some producing. You know, I uh, wrote a song for a band. You know, um, but I, all the time I thought at some point. You know, if I had the inclination, there would be an opportunity to step back into Judas Priest, you know, but that that situation just seemed to get worse and worse. So, you know, for, you know, without me doing anything, it was just um, those guys got more and more adamant to push me away and push me out and um, and have the monopoly on, on the whole of the business that I was a part of. And that continues. So... They're happy. The doors permanently closed. You know, I did write to them at least a few times, and uh, and so I just decided to Christmas 2019 sit down and say, okay, let me have a let me check out my songwriting skills, and so I shut myself away for January 2020, and and then I got some good demos, you know, for the whole thing, and I was very confident then to put a band together. And um, and and everything went very quick and very quick, and then it all stopped because of the COVID thing. So then we just had to hang around. But now, you know, I said to the record company, I want everybody to have this album. I just want to release it, you know. I, I just want to do that. Um, we did have some shows booked last year, and this year, was, this year, some very good shows, but they all got cancelled. So. Hopefully next year will be our year to get out there and do a world tour.
any of these um, any of these songs like the ideas, the riffs? What, what's what's the oldest of these? Have you been hanging on to these for a few years? Oh, I mean, so I did mention that. Obviously, I have a catalogue that I've always carried with me, you know, through my career. Anything I recorded on little cassette machines, all got you know converted into you know uh, audio files. So it's all there. And uh, obviously, I was starting a new project. So the first thing I did was check out to see what I had in the archives. And there was a couple of bits, couple of pieces that I'd probably presented to Judas Priest. But obviously, that was always a collaboration and often a compromise. So, but obviously, I always thought the ideas were good. So, um, you know, I, I love the idea of carrying some antiquity forward with me. That gives me a great kind of secure feeling. You know, because I love obviously classic metal, and and it's so it's not the easiest thing to write like you're in 1970 because you're not. Yeah. When you're in 1970, you write like that, you know. So if you can get a few bits and pieces to bring forward, that's good, and then that does encourage you to get into that mindset as well. I think you know if you want to write some really classic stuff, you know. But 90, 95% of it was, was, was just pretty new stuff, you know, um, which was great. But obviously, I had a lot of emotions and a lot of sentiments and, and a lot of things to express, you know, in the music. And I think that's why it made it quite easy, because I was looking at the lyrics and, and the melody lines, because I was on my own, you know, in the UK. Um, I just kind of got on with it and developed it as much as I possibly could.
do you look at this that this is like the the first one of a number of records will there be more later on absolutely i've already started i already have the backbone of the songs for the next record you, you know um so which i'm really excited about in fact i've got an engineer coming around today because i've just bought a new computer and i've got to load up with all the latest versions of of Cubase and stuff like that. So all of that's happening. So I'm excited to get a new toy. So we'll convert everything from my old machine onto the new one. And um, and like I say, if it wasn't for me doing obviously promo publicity, the guys are flying over soon as well. Hopefully COVID permitting, we're going to do some more videos and some more songs, photo shoots and signing things. And, and we're going to go down the pub and have a beer like a real band. <laughs> Hopefully, that's going to be good too and um, so we're just going to discuss all of our future and uh, I'm looking forward to that but say if we don't get out on tour this year I'm very much looking forward to getting the mainstay of the next record ready to go because while all the natural energy is flowing and that's what I like about this record Sermons of the Sinner even in the ballads there seems to be like a natural genuine kind of something that's quite uplifting about the whole thing you know um and uh and money can't buy that you know it just has to come out it either happens or it doesn't you know and yeah. uh and it does on this record i really do feel it you know yeah you you talked about in priest it was a real collaborative effort when writing did did you hook up with ripper why you were writing these songs for this record? No, because we did the gig in uh, October 2019. Yeah. And in November 2019. And it was in December. Well, it was, no, it was, uh, it was in December, the next month, Christmas, because I, I don't really do Christmas now, you know, I don't have a big family and stuff like that. It doesn't mean I get a bit bored, to be fair. Yeah, because you know, everybody's doing things. So I'm thinking this is a time, always a time to catch up on work, you know. Yeah. And um, so I just locked myself away, and um, and obviously I was on my own. Fortunately, I was able to get Ripper over to put all the vocals down, and Sean, our drummer, to put the drums down just before the, the that lockdown hit, you know. And then everything stopped. We couldn't get into the studio, hotels, whatever. So. I, I just continued. Luckily, I had the vocals down, had the drums down. I was able to carry on with the production and just just work on the guitar parts, really, embellishing, you know, improving the guitar, all of the guitar parts and everything. So that was cool. But it was done pretty quickly. The whole thing, you know, yeah. It was meant to. I was meant to hand it over to the record company at the end of April, finished, and I was on course to do that. Of course, when COVID hit, I thought, okay. I'm not going to hand it over if I don't have to. I'm just going to, I'm just <laughs> going to keep hugging it and you know and uh, you know wiping its backside and and making sure they're happy with it.
Well, uh, Ripper, I mean, have you guys stayed in touch all the way back since he was in Priest? Yeah, 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 we do. When, when Ripper was coming to America, uh, to America, to the US, to, to the UK, with, uh, with his bands, you know, who would tour, uh, Disciples of Dio, and then the one tour I saw, which was incredible, Ripper played the whole of uh, the Jugulator album, I think. It was amazing. His voice was incredible. So, um, so that was a real treat. And of course, I think we re-recorded uh, "Beyond the Realms of Death" with Les and Paul Crook. We did that as well. So, yeah, we've always kept our friendship, you know. Right. So, so, so he was a. It was a natural to give him a call when this popped uh, up. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. What, was so, there? Was there ever been, anyone else? Was there ever anyone else when you were writing, you were thinking, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll call this guy for this song or that song or anything like that? No, I think Ripper, because obviously Ripper's, we, we have the friendship and the association. You know, we've we done a lot of shows together, a lot of touring, and, you know, obviously we recorded two albums together. And so, you know, and, um, and, if I was perfectly honest, as I said before, you know, I was really disappointed when Les couldn't make it because I really wanted to put, you know, something, like I say, I'm the type of person I like, if I could live in an old house that's centuries old, I prefer to do that. You know, I prefer antique furniture. I know it's a bit old fashioned now, but I'm that type, you know, I mean, I like antiquity, but, and, uh, but with music, I think that we all have an affinity to the music that we grew up with, you know, and uh, and I certainly do. And so just to be able to re- relive a part of your past with old friends is a nice feeling and comforting, you know. If you're going to go on a journey with with people, new people, brand new people, it's more likely not to work, but if you have at least some some people that you can know and trust, I think that that's that's good. But it's also important to have some new and young blood in a band that has, you know, because like with AJ and Tony and and Sean, they have they have a hunger, you know, and that's good. That, mm. That's a good thing, I think. Yeah, I was thinking. I mean, going back to when you started out playing when you were a kid. Who were the uh, guitar players that you kind of looked to, and who inspired you, and who did you who did you think were the great guitar players when you were a kid? Well, for me, Hendrix was just, and even now, he's unsurpassed. You know, as an artist and performer and a music and a guitar player, he's he's unsurpassed. What he had was just incredible. You know. Um, so, you know, just the natural ability to improvise and, and feel and, and everything about it. But obviously, when I first saw him in 1967, it did change my life, you know, um, the way I saw and listened to music forever and a day. I mean, he was a massive, and he was the first, it was the first one to really, well, I heard an abundance uh, of a music that wasn't available to me, and that was 
not known it then, but it was what we call heavy metal today. I mean, songs like Purple Haze and, and Foxy Lady, those riffs and the music and, and, and the edginess uh, and the ferociousness of Hendrix on the guitar when he wanted to do, you know, was uh, fantastic. Did, did you ever see him live? Yeah, yeah. So I saw him at Coventry Theatre in 1967, and, I, uh, and then two weeks later at Bristol, Colston Hall, and then I saw him at Woburn Abbey Music Festival. I saw both the concerts at the Royal Albert Hall, and um, I think I saw him six times altogether. You, you only ever hear about people. Off. Yeah, you, you only ever hear about people seeing him once. You know, yeah, I saw him at this show, or I saw him at you know. At the, at the second show of the band of gypsies are so you, the fact that you got to see him six times is amazing yeah and i saw him at the isle of Wight. all oh, right yeah. so that's the albert hall two shows there the isle of Wight, bristol colston hall woven that woven abbey music festival and um the coventry theater
he he had an impact on you. Uh, are you able to to step back a little bit and see the impact that you've had, and especially the the twin guitar attack has had over the years on on heavy metal for the last forty years, fifty yeah, years? Yeah, I, I think so because obviously, you know, all type of got all types of you know um, people come up to have come up to us in the past, you know, and said that, you know, some 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 people you wouldn't expect, you know, like the Slipknot guys saying, oh, yeah, you know, you and my big inspiration, you know, when I started, you know, and you get, you know, uh, you know, everybody from, from everybody, you know, saying that, and I guess we were there very early on, that's for sure, you know, doing this um so that's very rewarding to have been inspiration to just so many players you know because i know what it feels like to be so humble with the heroes that i worshipped you know yep. but also i mean uh uh when a guy like eddie van halen came out in 1978 did that have any kind of impact on you as a guitar player um it was wonderful. I saw Van Halen support Black Sabbath at at a, at a theatre in Birmingham. <laughs> that was amazing. That was on their, at Van Halen's first tour. They were on fire, to be fair, you know. Yeah. Uh, Sabbath are always great. But that was with the traditional lineup, but but there was just a spark about the energy of uh, of Van Halen, you know. But obviously, I met Eddie very early on. You know, when we would go to like Santa Monica Civic and play there and Dave and Eddie would come. And I didn't really know who they were really to begin with, but we would party. Those guys were crazy. We went back to like Dave's place and, oh, it was insane the things that went on, but that that was good. But Eddie said, Eddie said that was when he first got into the whammy bar was obviously seeing me with, go crazy on the whammy bar but you know so that was like to hear things like that is great but we become you know obviously we would bump into each other quite a lot you know and uh and talk guitars and things you know so um great memories great memories it, it's great to see the whammy bar um joined you in this band from day one from the opening song of the record to the opening video you know, <laughs> it is a part of me, and I'll make no bones about it. You know, I mean, I, I, you see, I love to do all types of uh, stuff with, with feedback and whammy bar stuff, and I don't do enough of it, but I will. Mm. You know, this time I'm using like con- controlled feedback, but I want to do what Hendrix uses and and do some uncontrolled feedback. You know, things, um. And I used to do that early on, you know, in the 60s, live performances and stuff like that, you know, use the resonance and the ambience and the reverb of a room. I used to move about so I could have this relationship with the connect my, to, to my amps via the feedback, you know, and, and I used to play with that a lot. You know, Hendrix used to do that a lot, you know, and when it worked, it was magic. You know, when it didn't work, it wasn't so good. But, you know, it's from night to night. And that's that's the elements of live improvised performances. And I miss that, you know. 
And that's what I kind of am going to get more into doing, you know. I could have let rip a lot more on this record, but but the studios, you see, being closed, it you know, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to, to be able to set up in a live theatre or live rooms and to do that, but I'm going to do it on the next record. Nice. I did do some of it, some of it in um, not as well as I would like to on the very first record, Rock and Roller, but I did do it there. You know, I I was actually recording like I was live on stage. Yep. Yep. You know, in fact, Chris Tangaridis will, will bless him now. Unfortunately, he's gone. But he tells a story when I was doing. Uh, solo too. I went on the second record at Morgan Studios. He heard all of this crazy feedback and whammy bar stuff going on, so he opened the studio and he says, I was throwing the guitar around and doing it, which I probably was, you know, because that's how I did it live, you know. And and he went, fuck, he went to his boss and said, fuck up, can I record with that band? And he came and worked on the session as a tape op. And a T-boy, that was Chris Tangaridis all those years ago. <laughs> that was in the good days. We had UFO upstairs in Studio 4, I think it was. Sabbath were over the road in, in Studio 2. I think we were in Studio 1, you know. So that was, you know, that was good. <laughs> that, was, that, that was in those days. It was, it was fun just to walk around the studios and bump into people.
What was it about the Midlands in those days that created such amazing music? I don't know. I know that I was there. Like I say, my story is that, like I say, I grew up. And I think it's an interesting story. And that's what the, the song Hellfire Thunderbolt is about. One of the songs is about this is like, where did metal come from? How did it? Because it wasn't there for centuries and centuries. And possibly it will disappear in the future. We don't know. But for like these magical decades, I know in the early 60s it wasn't there. We didn't have a music for, for like working class white kids, very poor kids like like me, you know what I mean? We were set we were we were set to be like criminals and things like that, you know, juvenile delinquents, which I was, but music was my salvation. You know, I found music. But it was hard for me, so I didn't. My sisters had Elvis and Cliff Richards and uh, the Beach Boys and stuff like that. So, but then I found blues music, which was okay, and I liked that. I'm talking about the black blues artists, and I used to go and see them. You know, Freddie King, Albert King, uh, Sonny K. Brown and McGee, whoever I could, as a as a young kid, being, you know. 14 and 15 years old, um, I used to get on trains and I just used to go, and I, I didn't have money, but I used to go anywhere I could to see a black blues artist. But people were already doing that. Eric Clapton, you know, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, they were these guitar players, Kim Simmons, you know, they were already, Rory Gallagher, they're already doing this, you know. Um, and they became progressive blues band, which was fantastic. We remember great, many, many great progressive blues bands. Cream were a great progressive blues band, taking blues standards and doing all of these wonderful improvised solos, which is a die for, was wonderful. And then you get the amazing Peter Green in Fleetwood Mac, who started out with John Mayer in a blues band, which was great. But he wanted to progress on that and look at the great songs he did, blues songs, so progressive like Albatross and Green Malaysia and Oh Well and stuff like that. And the list goes on. What a great progressive blues band that was because yeah. it was blues. It's like Hendrix with The Wind Cries Mary. To me, that's blues. Hendrix was a blue, great blues player. He was a great progressive blues player, but he still had the ingredients of heavy metal to me, mm. you know. And so all-encompassing, you know, no wonder I did myself as a, as a would-be wannabe guitar player to the great Jimi Hendrix. But then we had a lot of other bands doing it their way as well. And I went to all of the festivals in the 60s, as many as I could. And you'd see Tongue, you'd see Free. Obviously, Rory Gallagher, Taste, Bloodwing Pig, 10 Years After, Jess O'Toole, Led Zeppelin. I mean, it just went on and on, you know, because Led Zeppelin were a great progressive blues band. You know, True. they were. They did what a lot of the stuff that they did was great progression on blues. But it wasn't until the Mighty Sabbath album dropped. I mean, we were doing gigs, yep. you know, trying to play this dark emotional stuff that was riff orientated and and it, it was what we 
considered to be heavy metal, you know, uh, because myself and Alan Atkins were writing stuff like what would become victim changes and stuff like that, and remnants of other stuff that landed upon the first record. But it was still very early, trying to trying to create this music that didn't exist yet, because we in the sixties we didn't have heavy metal, we didn't have heavy rock, we didn't have hard rock. You know, at that time we didn't even have rock. We had rock and roll, but we didn't really have rock music. But there were little remnants of music you could hear. Like when I first heard 1965, You Really Got Me by The Kinks. Why did I like that song? They were supposed to be a pop band, but I liked that song. You know, so wonderful when I saw Van Halen do it. <laughs> when was that? When would that be? Early eighties, eighty one or something? I'm no, that was that was before that. That was on the first record. Like the... So when I when I heard that, I was thinking, that's why I like that song way back in nineteen sixty five. You know, because a band like this can do that. You know, but there was little little bits, some early stones. You know some early Trogs, Wild Thing. And I'm thinking, why do I not like Wild Thing? They're supposed to be a pop band. They're in the charts. And then, because the great Jimi Hendrix does it, and then I think, now I know why I like that song. You know. So, but that's what I say. The, the genre of music for, let's say, blues music for white working class kids, you know, that weren't in the cotton fields feeling all of that oppression when that music was created, but we were suffering a, a similar type of oppression as working class kids just after the Second World War. You know, it was tough. Mm. It was hard being a kid in the black country in the 50s and the 60s. It was rough. Together, this music will last forever. Yeah. 
when I was growing up, we didn't have toothbrushes or anything like that. But that wasn't for our class. Working class people didn't have toothbrushes, and there's a lot, I mean, unheard of. You wouldn't even, nobody had toothbrushes. It was so inevitably we had a hard time growing up with, you know, looking after our teeth and things. But, but it wasn't just that. It was a lot of things that we didn't have, you know. It was so, hard. so it, it, it was really hard. was. It really was your salvation. Music really was your salvation. It was. I was going down a rough road, you know, of of things, you know, stealing and doing things at school. I was school was a bad place for me to be because I was what I was what was considered to be a scruff at school. They called the kids a scruff. Yep. If you were a scruff, it meant usually you'd be. You didn't look like the other kids or act like the other kids. You weren't dressed like the other kids. You didn't have a proper school uniform, you know. You didn't have a leather satchel, you know. It was it was all gen- generic stuff, you know. And lots of people were scared of scruffy kids because we were rough kids, you know. Yep. So, but to me, I didn't really know any different. I knew I felt a bit ashamed because I didn't look like the other kids, you know. Um, but like, for example, if you're in a class on a Monday morning of 30 kids or more, we had a thing where if you were a scruff and your parents didn't have jobs, you could stay free school dinners. So you had one meal a day. And there was two or three kids, scruffs, in the class, you put your hands up to stay for his school dinners. All of the other kids pay for their dinners. All right. So it's that type of upbringing, you know. It was so you go, you're heading for crime and stuff like that. But like I say, music saved me because I bought a guitar. You know, I don't know how I managed to buy it, but I did for £10. And I started to try to learn to play it. But... Pop music was for happy kids and and kids that that had everything that they wanted in life, you know. Yep. Um, so we didn't have the music that had the grit and and everything, you know, and and the emotions that we felt, you know. Mm. So the blues thing was a big help. To be fair, it was a big thing. It was. It was. It, it helped us get from this place to where we wanted to go, you know. Yep. And then, and then slowly and surely we were doing things. And then you had other bands like the Scorpions, for example, you know, and, and UFO, and a lot of other bands. You know, uh, you still wanted more metal, but it was all good, and it was getting to a place, you know. Obviously, yeah. when, obviously, when I introduced all the guys into the band, it was all a collaboration. If I'd have had it all my way, it probably would have all been a lot more darker and, and heavier, maybe, you know. But the collaboration was good. It was good to tone it down a bit, made it more accessible. And then eventually we, we had a big, massive, the boundaries of what we created in, in what we like to call heavy metal, really classic metal, was from everything from example I give you, let's say from Blood Red Skies to Living After Midnight, 
and there's a massive amount in between. And that's good because the folds became very big. You know, people probably were used, used Judas Priest as a benchmark thing. And if Judas Priest played, it must be heavy metal. So, you know, it, it helps a lot to get a lot to popularize, really, you know, the genre of, of metal because it was hard in the beginning. You know, people looked to other types of rock music that was happening, you know. Um, for everything from the West Coast music that had that had validity, not for me, but obviously people like you know the James Grant Gang, Grateful Dead, and you know all of those bands that was happening over there. Um, not my ideal, but a lot of British people were turning to that West Coast style of music and those bands. There was a lot of people that liked all of that type of thing. You know, and that went on, you know, from Molly Hatchet to I mean, loads of bands, you know, like the American, the American interpretation of what was becoming rock music. But, um, but for me, I was always kind of the UK end, really. Yeah. And then it was great, uh, fantastic to see through the wonderful decades, the 70s, the 80s, you know, and... Um, and to see bands from other European countries, lots of them coming out, you know, with uh, some really great, some great uh, bands also.
it's wonderful that you still embrace that music too like um with this record it's it's definitely an extension of you you know you can really really hear that it's you that's owning yeah. this it's really good that's that's like like me the, the way i naturally look, look first thing in the morning <laughs> it's it's just totally honest and you know the, the album is just it's just like me doing it like on um in my subconscious almost do you know what I mean? yep didn't really have to think too hard about it so i just uh straight great i've got the freedom to do this now <laughs> i'm gonna do it and um and 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 I, I don't nothing's going to change from now on for me i don't think it's just going to be i did say before in an interview interview before if this makes sense i'm not going to make individual records now everything's going to be an extension of it's all going to be one record okay so hopefully in in some years to come hopefully you'll put all of kk's priest records together and it can all just sound continuous hopefully just all good songs together if that Love makes it. sense right it does, yeah. it does. Yeah. and 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 just to to end up um you you mentioned that you're already writing the next record mm. um how how far along are you in that and um obviously you want to get out and tour this record but yeah, it's pretty embryonic now but i only i only do it over about a four or five day period maximum in february at the end of february and i haven't re revisited it since but it's all there ready to go but i've been busy doing other things um but it's good to have a break from it now i'll go back and i'll load each song up separately and spend a day or half a day on each song now and develop them further and hopefully i'll get the rest of the boys over and um and hopefully they can um They've got some ideas as well, and, and we can, you know, put everything together. The main thing is that uh, you have an abundance of ideas, and they're all pretty good, you know. Uh, and then the rest is not that difficult to do, I don't think. But I do, and on this record, I have created some some fairly intricate musical parts on a couple of songs, on a few songs, and I like that too. And I like to do more of that. You know where we, where we 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 have because it's kind of that is a part of the way people used to do it in the old days. You know, yep. you'd have you'd have nice, lengthy instrumental interpretations. You know, um, a nice variety of ideas, and then you come back to the main body of the song, and and I like that. You know, not on all songs, but just. Sometimes I like, I like, I like that uh, kind of. Um, I think it just shows that it's just what people bands used to do with improvised sections when you used to see them in, in the old days, and I used to do that too. Yeah, used to do that too. You know, um, and maybe we'll do something that's completely. Improvised. I would like to do it live on stage. You know, if we do a song yeah. and we do an improvised section, but it's not. It's in in the middle of the song, maybe. Yeah. I, I like to do that. It's dangerous, but that's what's exciting about live performance, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? 
Like we yep. used to do like a guitar solo, for example, I would just do that at random, you know, just tell the band to be quiet and do a guitar solo. And we used to do that, you know, and uh, yeah, I just have some fun with it, really. Yeah, it's, it's so great to hear you're so excited about it. Yeah, but the main thing is I'm not going to cut myself from the past completely. I want to I want, I want to take all of that legacy and that history in my life into the future with me, with some, just me. Well, it's you. It's you and it's it's for, for us. It's you yeah, as because, well. You're that. Because the thing is, I think if we're all completely honest, this music that I, I love and I'm beholden to, when I enjoyed it, you know, massively at the most, it, the 70s and the 80s it was pretty much the pinnacle of, of classic and true metal, really, as we know it, where it was there in an abundance and everything was good, the feel factor. I mean, every sort of day almost a new star band would come along, you know, and create great records. Um so it'd be great to see those days come back. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully we will. Once the pandemic's out of the way, let's try and head that way. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. KK, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot, guys. Lovely to meet you and uh, certainly see you in Sweden. Yes. Absolutely. And sure. congratulations on the record. Record's great. Yeah, don't forget us for Sweden rock and, you know, we want to play Gothenburg as well, of course, and please let me play the globe again one more time <laughs> before it's, you know, all over. You know, wonderful venue that is. That was uh, fantastic I, to play there, so. Yeah, I can yeah. remember when you played there, actually. Um, it, was, it was quite a while ago. Yeah. I know it was a good turnout. I know that a lot of people, so that was good. So. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll see you all there again soon. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, mate. Thank you, guys. Love it. Take care. Bye. Take care. See you later. Bye.
Bye.